You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Because we're not all that almighty. In fact, we're nothing of the sorts. When you, when you ask somebody, what does this text mean to you? You ever heard that question? Our sinful, selfish hearts immediately begins to deduce it and says, yeah, well, this text is about me. And we read ourselves into the text, thereby often distorting the Bible and its meaning. And we miss, because of our selfishness and pride, we miss the beauty of the truth in the scriptures about the Lord, about his greatness, about his power to save sinners like us. We come to a passage where we have a tendency to do that. The account of David and Goliath. And I think that this section of scripture is a quick litmus test that reveals how we handle the word of God. The story of David and Goliath is well known by virtually everyone, even those who have never read the Bible. Maybe the only verse they know is judge not that you be not judged. Yet they still know, right? David and Goliath, they've heard the story. It's become a sort of metaphor in our popular culture of the classic underdog story. You can find it referenced in film. Even film borrows the sort of plot development that we'll read in our chapter today. You can hear about it in politics, the under, underdog opponent and victory in election. You can read about it in science articles. You can read about it in sports, of course, right? The David and Goliath. It's, it's everywhere in our culture. And when people reference David and Goliath, they do so completely disconnected from 1 Samuel chapter 17. And often by using the, the, the reference of David and Goliath, miss the whole point of the story in the first place. I read an example of this just this last week as Ukrainian President Zelensky appealed for more weapons on Twitter, Twitter, this is what he said. David defeated Goliath, not by conversation, but by courage and sling. Courage we do have, the sling should get stronger. And no matter how you assess the Ukrainian and Russian war, I think we can all agree that we probably aren't going to put Zelensky in a pulpit anytime soon, because David and Goliath is not about the need for stronger weapons. <laughs> in fact, Zelensky's appeal actually contradicts the main point of 1 Samuel chapter 17, that the Lord grants victory despite the weakness of the weapons. So no matter who you are, I think we want to read 1 Samuel 17 with fresh sort of eyes. And we want to attend that freshness of eyes, particularly as we come to a text like this that's so familiar. Sometimes our familiarity with the scripture can cause us to miss the beauty and the dynamic and what the Lord is teaching us in his word. So let's study David and Goliath in its context, and let's read it with the understanding this morning that God is the hero of this account, not you and not me. And so in the last chapter, we saw in chapter 16 that the Lord selected his king. It was a young boy from Bethlehem named David. And the chapter concluded at the end of chapter 16 with David being brought into Saul's house. Now, most likely that happened after the events of chapter 17. 
It's brought earlier in the narrative in chapter 16 to make the contrast between Saul and David in terms of the spirit of the Lord rushing upon David and removing from Saul. 1 Samuel 17, the passage we're reading today is most likely David's first public introduction to the nation, but also most likely his first time meeting King Saul. And what an introduction this will be. So the historian of Samuel slows down the narrative to a, almost a crawling place, and he gives space for all the details to be expanded. He is immersing us in this historical count of David's victory. And reading 1 Samuel 17, as we will this morning, I hope you'll begin to see that this is a more enthralling story than anything Hollywood comes up with. So let's get reading, and let's encounter this monstrous villain that we're introduced to at the start of the chapter in verse one. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the Valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him, let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed greatly afraid. The Philistines have been a constant threat throughout all of 1 Samuel. Saul, you might remember a few chapters prior, achieved a victory over the Philistines, largely due to the courage of his son, Jonathan. But we were told that the victory was not as great because Saul, in his rash vow, foolishly required his army to fast, thereby weakening their ability to fight and therefore lessening the victory over the Philistines. And by chapter 17, we see that the Philistines have recovered. They've regrouped, and now they're gathering for a battle against Israel. The scene for the battle is the Valley of Elah, and the, the army of Israel gathered on one side of the valley with the Philistine horde on the other side of the valley. The encampment here parallels the setting of Jonathan's earlier victory in the book as the armies were separated by a rocky gulf. But Jonathan's past victory is simply a foreshadowing of this victory, of the one that God appointed to be heir to the throne. In the Valley of Elah, the Lord's anointed will descend into the valley to fight on behalf of Israel. And from the Philistine encampment, 
entered their champion, Goliath of Gath. Now the giants that that filled the land back when Joshua was leading the people into Canaan were the Anakim. They were people largely eradicated by Joshua during the conquest. And we were told in the book of Joshua chapter 11 that there were a few survivors of the Anakim, of the giants, and one of the cities that harbored the giants and the refugees from uh, Anakim uh, were the city of Gath, the city of the Philistines. So the Philistine giant was most likely a descendant of the Anakim. And by the time we read this account in 1 Samuel 17, we've seen that once again, giants have returned to the garden land of Israel. The conquest is being undone. Goliath is a monstrous, monstrous villain. He's presented in a snake-like sort of way. He was nine feet, nine inches tall, which I think would qualify him for any basketball team today. And he was decked out in the cutting edge technology of the Philistines and all of their marvelous innovation. Remember, since the Philistines had a monopoly on the blacksmiths, their champion Goliath showcased their superior technology over Israel. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was cloaked in a coat of mail, which is better translated, I think, as a scale armor. The scale armor weighed 126 pounds. Plus, his legs were covered with bronze. He had a javelin. He had a giant spear whose spearhead weighed around 15 pounds. He had a massive shield that required the use of a shield bearer to carry around. Most likely, that shield would have covered the gigantic portion of his nine-foot body. So from head to toe, the giant of Gath, this Goliath, in his glimmering scales, is portrayed as a monstrous serpent slithering into the valley of Elah. And the man not only looks like a snake, but he speaks like a snake, like the serpent of old in the garden. Goliath raises his voice in mockery against God and against God's people. And he says, I am a Philistine. I think better translated, I am the Philistine. In other words, Goliath is portraying himself as the quintessential Philistine, representing the strength, the power, the innovation, the wisdom of his people. And so he begins to taunt Israel with his words. And he says, well, I I am the Philistine. I represent the best humanity has to offer, the best of my people. And you, you guys are just slaves of Saul. He mocks them. He derides them. And so Goliath demands in his cockiness and his arrogance, choose a man among yourselves. Where have we heard that language before in the book of Samuel? The people had already done so. They had already chosen a man for themselves, and his name was Saul, the king they asked for. Israel wanted Saul for this very reason. For 1 Samuel chapter 17, remember their reason for wanting a king? They said, we want a king, Lord, so that we could have someone who could go out for us and fight our battles. Saul was Israel's Goliath, head and shoulders above the rest of them. But where is Saul? Verse 11 tells us, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And Goliath, the serpent, lies like a serpent too, 
He sets the terms for this agreement here that if he loses, the Philistines will become slaves of, of Israel and vice versa. But, but even though, as we will find out, that the serpent's head will soon be crushed by the Lord's anointed, the Philistines will still resist and fight. He's lying through his teeth. And so Saul and all of Israel are trembling before Goliath of Gath, and they are sitting there enduring the taunting of this Philistine. Who in Israel will rise to the occasion to crush this snake? We're introduced next to David. We're reintroduced, rather, to David, the youngest of Jesse's son. Let's keep reading in verse 12. Now, David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening, and Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So we're told that Jesse's three oldest boys, the ones that we were, that were named in the last chapter and passed over by Samuel, joined the army of Israel to fight with Saul. And David, as the youngest of the brothers, was required by his father to stay back and to tend to the sheep. But the standoff of, with Goliath was prolonged in an extended sort of way by Israel's fear. Every day, twice a day, for 40 days, Goliath slithered his way into the valley and taunted Israel. And with weeks, this had been going on. Every day, with no news, no Twitter hashtag feeds for Jesse to get an update on how the battle of the Valley of Elah is going. So, so he decides to send David to go check and see how things are going, to see how his sons are doing. So he sends David out with a, with a, a, a refreshing food for his brothers, along with a gift for the commander to get information about the status of the battle and perhaps to ensure the safety of his sons with a token. Jesse assumes that the fighting over these last 40 days, well, it must be intense must be vicious. It must be horrible. But as David shows up, the fighting hasn't even started yet. Israel is too fearful to fight and sits trembling each day before Goliath and his mockery. And so the overlooked David is sent to go check on this situation. He's kept out of the battle because he has been relegated to the domestic chores and menial tasks. Nevertheless, David is an obedient son. And just as Saul encountered Samuel through the menial obedience to his father in his hunt for the lost donkeys, so now David will come into public recognition as the Lord's anointed through delivering lunch to his brothers in obedience to his father's instruction. Remembering what happened to Saul, we are tipped off here by the historian of Samuel that we should expect extraordinary things with what's getting ready to happen. Through an errand, through an Uber delivery, Right? The Lord is sovereignly preparing to introduce his king to the world. Let's keep reading in verse 19. Now Saul 
And they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the next morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. The historian retells the, the introduction of the chapter of what's happening at the Valley of Elah, but this time we get it from David's perspective. This is David seeing it for the first time. David has been kept in the dark about what was happening. He wasn't there. He didn't know. And so he arrives to see that battle lines are forming up, but nobody's battling. So he's eager to see his brothers and wanting to see what's going on in the valley. He left his things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to go find his brothers. Now notice the irony tipped off to us here by the author. Saul was the king who was hiding among the baggage. David eagerly leaves behind his domestic duties with the baggage keeper, embracing his calling to lead. Here is Israel's king, a king with no hesitation, a king with no fear. So with a closer look at his brothers, David begins to realize what has been taking place these last 40 days. This hasn't been a battle. It's been a mockery. Goliath is coming out and roasting and, and deriding and, and insulting Israel, extending this challenge and just making fun of them and their cowardice. And the same thing happened day after day. And so as David realizes what's happening, we're raised with the question, what is going to break this standoff between Israel and the Philistines? Who's going to rise to the challenge? Who will put an end to the shame and the mockery of Israel? Everything in the narrative changes in verse 23. And David heard him. David heard. For 40 days, nobody did a thing. But David comes, and today is a different day. He hears. Today, the Lord's anointed heard the Philistine mockery. And David, with great zeal for the Lord, cannot stand by in silence, nor will he coward in fear. Does anybody have any sort of plan here to respond to this Goliath and this Philistine. And so David begins to listen among the, the encampment of Israel to hear what, what is somebody going to do about this? Somebody's got to do something about this. And he begins to listen to what the men of Israel are saying. And with the whiff of a rumor of a plan, David overhears some of the men talking. Let's keep reading in verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine, this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in this way, in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So David overhears the gossip of what the soldiers are talking about. King Saul, the rumor has it, will reward the one who successfully kills the Philistine, promising riches, promising his daughter's hand in marriage, 
and tax-free status for his father's household for life. Sounds like a pretty good deal. So when, well, Saul is the one in Israel that Israel chose to fight the battle for them. Here we see Saul is attempting to bribe a soldier to fight in his place. As David hears the news, he engages in conversation with this man. He says, what shall be done about with the man who kills this Philistine? But it becomes clear as David talks, he is not motivated by the rewards of victory. He's not enticed by that in any way. He is outraged by the dishonor being brought to his God. David wants to see Israel's reproach removed. David realizes that what's happening here in this valley is not just a battle between two nations, but this is a spiritual battle that is taking place as Goliath the Philistine is defying the army of Israel and therefore defying Israel's God, the living God. It's Dagon versus Yahweh. And right now, Israel is leading Goliath, this uncircumcised Philistine, mock and deride the God of Israel. And why is Israel standing around? You can can sense David's perplexity, his righteous indignation here. Why Why is everybody just standing around and letting Goliath do this? Letting Goliath mock? It's so key here for David. What compels him to action, what compels him to fight is not concern for himself, but concern for God's glory. He fights not for his own fame, but he fights for the fame of his God. He battles not to win honor for himself, but to vindicate the honor of God. Let me ask you, church, what is it that compels you to action? It's easy to let our own reputations, what people think about us, motivate us to action. I want to be impressive. I want to be noticed by the world. I want to make a difference. Not any of David's concerns. His concern is, how can my God be glorified? What must I do to vindicate his name in all the earth? That's what compels David to action. What should compel all of God's people, the fame of God's name. And David is compelled to action. And he finds himself here as he resolves to do something about this Goliath. He finds over the course of the narrative that that there's more than one Goliath that David has to fight here. He doesn't have just one Goliath, but he's got three Goliaths he has to face. The first Goliath is his taller, older brother, Eliab. And here David faces the contempt of Goliath. Let's read in verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done? Was it not but a word? He turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. The people answered him again as before. At first glance, we can rather innocently read of Eliab as nothing but a bossy older brother. You've got one of those, you know, what you're talking about. I was the bossy older brother. And he's just simply bullying David here, disregarding him. But Eliab's contempt is much more than that. And it reveals itself to be far more sinister than just an older brother's bullying. Eliab questions why David showed up in the first place. He considers David irresponsible in neglecting his shepherding duties and judges his brother's heart. David, the only reason you showed up here is because you are a childish boy with a vain curiosity of bloodlust for battle. Eliab's rebuke here probably exposes in his heart the jealousy that he had for his younger brother. 
the Lord looked on the intent of the heart, as we saw in 1 Samuel 16. And the Lord passed over the tall, handsome, dashing Eliab. And he chose the younger. He chose David. And now Eliab, thinking that he can see upon the heart, judges David's intention. It's important to remember that Eliab is one of the only few in Israel that knows that David is the Lord's anointed. Nobody else knows this yet outside of Jesse's family. And here is Eliab's sin. He judges the heart of David of the one who honors the Lord. Here's Eliab's sin. He reckons that God's assessment of David's heart is incorrect. And he accuses the man after God's own heart that he has a presumptuously evil heart. Eliab's mistake is confusing David for Saul. And thus, the tall and handsome Eliab finds himself opposing the very one whom God has chosen. And though he fights in the army of Israel, Eliab has unwittingly taken the side of Goliath and the Philistines. David doesn't defend himself from false accusations, unlike Saul, who pridefully defends himself from true accusations. Nor does David seek to reckon with his brother. Rather, he simply expresses, Eliab, I just simply asked a question. That's all I was trying to do. He will not share with his brother the plan that's starting to brew in his heart. So David turns away from Eliab's contempt and he begins to inquire of the army of Israel even more. David will not be deterred. And he presses on, talking with the other men, urging them to faith in the living God. As the younger David is making his way through the encampment of Israel, he, he's inquiring for, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. And apparently David began to do this with such persistence and urgency and zeal, this young lad walking through all these grown soldiers began to create quite a stir. So much so that Saul hears a report of what's happening with David in the battalion. That David is rallying the troops to trust in the Lord. And so Saul sends for this kid causing such a ruckus in his army, and he brings David into his presence. Let's read from verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Here we get what was most likely Saul's first encounter with David. And David begins by encouraging Saul to trust in the Lord, just as he had done with Israel's army. 
Let no man's heart fail because of him. Saul, don't be disheartened by Goliath. Don't let your heart fail before the Philistines. David is encouraging Saul to faith. And David's faith is not just in word, but it is in action. He volunteers to go and fight this Philistine. And I imagine at this scene that at this point, Saul's chuckling under his breath upon hearing David's words, chalking them up to nothing more, but here's a naive but spunky little kid who knows not what he asks. And Saul responds, David, you're you're not able to to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're You're just a youth. Goliath has been training for battle since his youth. He's a man of war. Goliath is well-trained. He is well-endowed. He is well-equipped killing machine. What chance does a shepherd boy from Bethlehem have against Goliath of Gath, the Philistine? And here David faces his second Goliath, the trembling Goliath of Israel, King Saul. As Saul gazes at David, As he assesses him and sizes him up, Saul, from his vantage point, victory seems impossible. But we've already been tipped off earlier in chapter 16, not to trust what man sees. The the, the Lord's words echo in the back of our minds here. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, the Lord said. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Saul and all of Israel look at the height of Goliath and they tremble in fear. And Saul looks at little old David, doesn't stand a chance. Saul sees as man sees. But no one has offered to go out and fight Goliath after these 40 days. And the young man... David, he's strong and courageous. Saul doesn't seem to have any other options. So David, go on ahead. And in David's speech to Saul, we get more insight for the reason of his courage. Out in the shepherd's field, David had to fend off lions and bears, beasts that were much bigger and much stronger than himself in order to protect the flock. And in David's mind, Goliath is nothing more than one of those beasts. And if the Lord delivered David from a lion and a bear, so too is the Lord able to grant deliverance over the Philistine, the Goliath of Gath. Particularly since the flock that David now must defend isn't the flock of Jesse, but the flock of God. So the desperate Saul agrees to let David fight, but not before seeing to it that David is equipped for the battle. Let's keep reading in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. If you remember from the earlier battle with the Philistines, no one in Israel had armor. Nobody in Israel had a sword, but Saul and Jonathan. Israel is technologically underpowered by a massive 
margin. The Philistines have nukes. Israel has a BB gun. They are vastly, vastly underpowered. And so the only armor they had was King Saul's armor. And so Saul's idea is the one, he's the one who ought to go out and fight, but he puts the, the armor on David with great irony, now clothing David in the armor that he ought to be wearing. Saul won't abdicate the throne as we will see, but he has functionally abdicated the leadership of God's people to David at this point. But here we see in Saul, the second Goliath that David must confront, the mind of Goliath. Notice how Saul operates with the exact same mindset as the Philistine. Saul has become a king in every sense of the word, like all the nations. Because in Saul's mind, in order to win this battle against Goliath, David needs the strength of the armor. He needs the best technology to be able to have victory over Goliath. Notice how similar Saul's armor sounds to Goliath's armor in its description. It's an intentional parallel, right? He's got a bronze helmet. He's got a coat of mail, just like Goliath. Now, while David may be much smaller Goliath, perhaps, Saul thinks, with similar equipment, maybe David's got a chance to win. The best armor is the only hope this lad has, according to Saul's assessment of things. And just as we witnessed earlier in Saul's kingship, Saul trusts in what he can see. He doesn't trust in the Lord. When his army was dwindling in size, what did he do? He panicked and he charged ahead without waiting on Samuel. And here, when the only champion that Israel has who's willing to go and fight is David, Saul puts his trust not in David, not in the Lord, but in the armor to protect David. Saul seeks to fight the Lord's battle with worldly means. But the Lord doesn't need a large army to win the day, nor does he need an impressive amount of armor on his champion. Let me ask you, do you operate with the mind of Goliath, the mind of King Saul? Do you trust worldly means rather than trusting in the Lord? I was thinking about this as a church plant, now five years old, almost five years old, we're getting there. It's just so easy for churches to begin to trust in worldly means to achieve success. It's so easy to trust in your marketing, your program, your children's ministry, and I was at a group meeting with pastors earlier this week praying, and it's just so easy for pastors to begin exchanging strategies rather than encouraging each other with the scriptures. It's easy to lean on those worldly means and mechanisms to have success, even in church life, rather than trusting in the Lord. It's easy for us to pick up the sword of pragmatism to fight off the kingdom of darkness rather than trust in the sling of God's word. So upon trying on the armor, David refuses to wear it. (laughs) He's inexperienced in fighting and armor. And instead, I'm not going to the battle as a king and all this armor and all this technology. I'm, I'm going out as a shepherd. And he leaves behind the armor. He even leaves behind a sword for a shepherd's rod rod and a shepherd's sling. He, He goes to the brook. He selects five stones, puts them in his pouch. And David will go out and he will fight in weakness to make evident the strength of the Lord. We can't help but see David's son here, can we? The Lord Jesus did not bring his kingdom through the might of any army or in the armor of kings. Instead, Jesus came humbly as a shepherd to gather the lost sheep of Israel, he said. And as he goes to battle, 
the enemy of sin and death of the cross. Jesus does not go to the cross with royal armor, but with the shame of nakedness. He fights not with a sword in his hand, but with nails in his wrists. He slays the devouring darkness of death by standing in the place of sinners like us. And instead of calling down an angel of a legion of angels to deliver him, Jesus willingly and joyfully succumbs to the humiliation of his death in order to achieve God's victory. And the courage of Christ in his weakness is foreshadowed by David. With a sling in David's hand, the young lad approaches the Philistine. Let's read in verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. The, the giant Goliath had to move forward, the text says, just to get a look at David as he approached. And when the Philistine finally got a good look at David, he is filled with rage. Now David faces Goliath himself, and the Philistine is insulted just by David's appearance. If, is this all that Israel thinks about Goliath? He's been standing out there mocking them for 40 days. They've been trembling in fear and they send out this kid. Is this some sort of joke? Is Goliath just some sort of dog that they just beat back with sticks? Are you going to take your, your upward basketball team and put in the NBA all-star game? Or are you going to take your dash soccer team and put them in the World Cup to win it all? Right, how dare Israel send out a puny and unequipped boy, not just against a Philistine, but the quintessential Philistine? How dare they? So Goliath begins to curse, utter curses against David in the name of his false god, Dagon. And with bloodlust in his eyes, Goliath is ready to just rip the little boy apart like a loaf of bread and feed him to the ducks. Goliath is menacing in his threats but he speaks to the one whom the spirit of the Lord has rushed upon. And with bold courage, David preaches Goliath's funeral sermon while he's still alive to hear it. Let's read this sermon in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. There are four things to emphasize here about David's sermon to Goliath. First, while David, while Goliath fights with weapons, David fights in the name of the Lord. David, as we've seen, refuses to trust in the weapons that Saul and Goliath so quickly depend. 
David tells Goliath, all I come in is in the name of the Lord. I don't have a sword, I don't have a javelin, I don't have fancy armor like you, but I come something even more powerful. I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then notice second, while Goliath vows curses to David, the Lord is going to reverse those curses on his enemies. Though Goliath vows to feed David to the birds, the Lord is going to reverse that upon Goliath, reverse that wickedness back on the Philistine. And then third, while Goliath defies the Lord, David will exalt the Lord in his victory. Goliath's death at the hands of David will be the great demonstration of God's power so that the Israelites trembling in their encampment as well as all the nations of the earth might hear and might know that there is a God in Israel. God will grant the victory for the sake of his glory in all the earth. God doesn't need a sword. He doesn't need a spear to save his people. It will be through David's weakness that the Lord will showcase his strength. The undersized and under-equipped David will prove by faith what Israel had forgotten in fear. The battle belongs to the Lord. With all the tension building up in this fight against Goliath, the battle is just recounted in two verses. Read them in verse 48 and 49. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Not only did Goliath lose to David, but the Philistine champion got knocked out in the first round. As the two approached each other, David just takes one stone from his bag, he slings it, he strikes the Philistine on his forehead, causing the the giant to fall on his face. Before the battle began, the battle was already won. Let's keep reading in verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David, Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The historian emphasizes here, if you, didn't, if you missed it, David went into the battle with no sword. All he had was a sling. And so with Goliath dead lying on the ground, we're told that in order to finish Goliath off, David goes and he takes Goliath's own sword and he chops off Goliath's head with it. We're reminded here of what the psalmists say, that those who worship idols become like them. And so Goliath the Philistine becomes like his god, Dagon. Just as the idol Dagon fell to the ground with a broken off head before the Ark of the Covenant, so now Goliath falls to the ground, decapitated by the Lord's anointed. 
And rather than surrendering and becoming servants of Israel, as the agreement said, the Philistines are absolutely shocked by this turn of events and they begin to run away in horror. And David's victory emboldens the army of Israel's faith in their God. And as the Philistines scurry, the the men of Israel pursued the Philistines. They rally around David and they plundered their camp. The people of God rallied around the Lord's anointed king. And so by one man's faith, we strengthen the faith of many. Verse 54 muddles the chronology a little bit here and tells us what David ultimately did with Goliath's skull and armor. The city of Jerusalem at that time was controlled by the Jebusites. Jerusalem won't be conquered by David until later on in 2 Samuel. But it's nevertheless a fascinating detail that the historian wanted to make sure he included here that Goliath's skull would eventually be brought to the city where David's son would achieve his victory at Golgotha, the place of the skull. And at that place, the Lord Jesus Christ, anointed by the Spirit of God, would achieve his victory in the weakness and the frailty of his flesh by dying in the place of sinners. And even though Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities, the Lord would vindicate his son. The Lord would bring glory to his name and he would exalt Jesus in wondrous victory as he rose again on the third day. And so does Jesus's obedience, even to the point of death. So does his unwavering trust in his father. So does his faith embolden the faith of many. As Jesus dies, he rises again. He slays a giant called Zen. He slays a Goliath called death. And all who rally with this victorious Christ, with repentance and faith, will, with Jesus, push back the kingdom of of darkness. And so will we enjoy the spoils of Jesus' victory. I hope you've begun to see by now that the account of David and Goliath is not about you. This text isn't about you slaying your giants. It's not about me, not about you. It's about Jesus, right? You are not David ready to face your giant today. We are the cowering Israelites trembling in fear before sin and death. But David foreshadows the king who is to come, who would conquer sin, who would conquer death, who would embolden weak Israelites like us. The battle belongs to the Lord. And by God's grace, we share in the victory of the Lord's anointed. What's what's most imperative for all of us today as we respond to 1 Samuel 17 is that we would identify who the giant slayer is, that we would recognize the one who crushes the head of the serpent, that we would recognize the one who is God's king, that we would recognize David's son and so come and worship him this morning. Let's keep reading in verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The scene shifts a little bit in chronology here. We get a flashback 
when Saul first saw David go out to face Goliath, he raises an all-important question. Who is this kid? Who is this? Whose son is this boy going to go and strike the, down the Philistine? And then after the battle, where David's victorious, we get the image of, of David the victor standing before Saul with Goliath's head in his hand, and he responds to the question, whose son are you? And he answers, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse. And as we witness today, the victory that Jesus accomplished over sin and death, all of it accomplished by Christ, we better ask like Saul, whose son is this? Who is this? The first verse in the New Testament of the Gospel of Matthew answers Saul's question. Jesus Christ, the son of David. David's victory over Goliath is a giant signpost plopped in the middle of the Old Testament, pointing us to the greater victory achieved by David's son, yet David's Lord. His identity is Jesus, born in Bethlehem, son of David, son of God, king of kings, Lord of lords. So bend your knee to him this morning in repentance and faith and rally behind Jesus in the victory that he has already won. Join with Jesus in his victory march along with his church and let's push back the kingdom of darkness together and spread Jesus's kingdom and the joy of his salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you have won the victory. We are grateful that the battle has already been won. That the great victory David accomplished in his defeat of Goliath points us forward to the promised son of David who would crush sin and death and who would rise again on the third day in victorious triumph. Lord, we are grateful that in Christ Jesus, we can share in his victory that for anyone who would repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ will be forgiven of all their sins and share in the spoils that Jesus has earned. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith in Jesus today. Whether we're trembling in fear over our sin, whether we're trembling in fear over death, we pray that you would give us faith. That we would trust Jesus' victory, that he is one. Lord, we praise you and we worship Jesus this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.